A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. This is A Mucky Business and I am Tim Farron. This is the show where you get to hear from a Christian who works either in or through the mucky business of politics. Of course, you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And of course, you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics in an informed way. Well, today we're going to be joined by the Labour MP, Marsha de Cordova. She became a Labour MP for Battersea at the 2017 snap general election, was re-elected in 2019, and has since served on the front bench as the Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equality, stepping back from that role just a few months ago. We're going to be discussing apartheid, her faith, and disability equality. But before that, I would like to talk about something that nobody appears to be talking about. With all the noise over Christmas parties that shouldn't have happened last year, and that may or may not be happening this year, most people will have missed the Nationality and Borders Bill, which passed through the Commons last week. Amongst the things that this bill would do is to give our government the power to remove British citizenship from nearly six million British dual nationals, and to do so without warning them. As of last week, the government may remove, if it's agreed by the House of Lords, any dual nationals UK citizenship for any reason, and it can do so without even contacting the person involved. Now, of course, ministers will understandably say that they would only ever use this power in rare and extreme circumstances regarding people who had done something appalling. Yet the new powers mean that they pretty much could exclude anyone. And just think about this. If I did something utterly appalling, I might get sentenced to life in prison, but the government wouldn't take my citizenship off me. Why? Well, because I've pretty much only got a British family heritage for as long back as I'm aware. So what the government has done is to say that the citizenship of people whose British family history isn't as lengthy as mine isn't as important as mine. It's basically saying that someone whose family migrated to the UK is less British than me. When we look at our Bible, we know that our God considers no one to be a non-person. Every hair of your head is numbered, so every hair of every head is numbered. You are of infinite value to the God who created you. He knows you inside and out. He died for you. No one has the right to tell you that you are no one. Christmas tells us that our God chose to be born on the outside. I mean, literally born outside, but also to a marginalised young woman, unmarried at the time of conception, who with her new husband was then forced to flee a refugee family running from the murderous attention of a king. Three decades later, this child would become the ultimate outsider, rejected by the people, betrayed or deserted by his friends, taken outside the city walls, subject to crucifixion. A form of execution meant not just to kill you, but to expose and humiliate you as you suffer publicly without pity, a defeated man, a worthless man. My point is, that our God knows exactly what it is to be excluded. Next to him hung others who were excluded, those two thieves. Grievous and utterly excessive though their punishment was, nevertheless, they had committed crimes. Yet we know that Jesus extended a welcome to those excluded men, a welcome that one of them reached out for and received. Let's be blunt. Those who are on the sharp end of this new law are not society's most visible nor popular people. 
That's a good reason for Christians to be mindful of them. Proverbs 31 verse 8 tells us, open your mouth for the mute. In Deuteronomy 10.19, God commands his people to love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Bible is full of commands to care for those whose voice isn't usually heard and whose home hasn't always been here. God usually accompanies that command with a reminder that they too were once outsiders and that God rescued them from that state. Christians are those who, whilst once being enemies of God, have been rescued according to his grace. To my mind, Christians have an explicit duty then to care for those whom others may seek to exclude. Probably most of you listening are not amongst the nearly six million people who would now be eligible to lose their citizenship. But one of the things I want this podcast to achieve is to introduce Christians to issues that might otherwise fly under our radar. Maybe after exploring this issue, you will decide that the government is right to give itself this power. And I wouldn't expect you to automatically agree with my opinion on this. You must ponder this for yourself. But I am bound to say that even if we think that this government wouldn't abuse this power to strip people of their Britishness at the stroke of a pen, it seems naive to me to think these powers will always be used correctly. What about some future government? This feels to me a ready-made toolkit for someone with far worse motives. As Christians, we know that we've been afforded the greatest inclusion, to be grafted into God's very family. Our compassion for others and our compulsion to speak up for those least valued by the world should, in my view, lead to us to be deeply concerned by this move. And as the House of Lords now scrutinizes this legislation, we might pray for compassion and wisdom for those in Parliament in the hope that this matter might yet be revisited. After all, this is the season where we celebrate the arrival into this world of the ultimate outsider. A mucky business with Tim Farron. And so to our guest, Marsha de Cordova is the Member of Parliament for Labour for Battersea. She gained the seat in 2017 for the Conservatives, held it in 2019. She served on the Labour front bench as the Shadow Secretary of State for Women Inequalities and still serves very much at the front line of British politics. And most importantly, she's with us now. Welcome, Marsha. Good morning, Tim. Lovely to see you. It's great to have you with us. Well, given given the nature of this podcast, we're going to ask you the most important question. Tell us about your faith. How did you how did you become a Christian? How did that journey happen? Yeah, of course. So I growing up, we were brought up going to Sunday school, but to say it wouldn't be right for me to say that I had a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ or you know had a had a strong faith. And I'll say as well, I didn't, it wasn't like a big thing that happened that mm. made me turn to Christ. I think you know, when I was probably in my early 20s, possibly, early to mid 20s, I knew that something was missing and uh, from my life. And I remember walking into a Christian bookshop in Southwest London and um, I bought a Bible. Um, couldn't understand it because it was the King James Version. So it was, wasn't the easiest. But anyway, nonetheless, um, one of my best friends invited me along to her church and I went along and I thought, mm, this is OK but not really for me. And then um, another friend invited me to their church. So clearly something's happening. And I went along to this particular church, I won't mention, but honestly, uh, Tim, it was all very lights, camera action. They were singing. There was a band. There was lots of jumping around. And I just thought, this is not church as I know it. Um, And I thought, okay, I left. But, you know, I kept going back to that church. 
mm. even without the friend that invited me, something was just drawing me back um, to that church and just the messages uh, about Christ and, and so forth really, you know, resonated with me. And it was in that church that I made that commitment and became Christian and I got baptised and I've been following um, Jesus Christ and trying to live out my best life um, ever since. And was there anything that was a particular passage in the Bible or a particular story or a sermon that really resonated with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I do remember, I mean, it was, I think it was around about Easter time. So in that kind of period. And um, it was the message, you know, when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples. And I, it was it was actually that Sunday that I made the commitment because, you know, Jesus, who he is and who he, who he was and continues to be. But the humility of him when he was actually, you know, being a servant to his his disciples was just that that really did resonate with me. And I suppose each of us whether in politics or in whatever walk of life, we are all servants of the Lord as well. Mm. And, and politics is something that you were interested in, whether you would have called it politics, but from a relatively early age. Tell me a little mm. bit about how that came onto your radar. Well, like, what I should say is I didn't grow up saying I wanted to be a member of parliament. That, <laughs> that definitely wasn't on my radar, but I did kind of grow up knowing that I wanted to make a difference. I do know that my purpose in life um, is about being the voice for the voiceless. You know, that's biblical. It's in, in the book of Proverbs. But as mm. a child growing up, um, for my 10th birthday, I received um, a gift from my cousin about Nelson Mandela. So it was, and, you know, back then, I'm going to be showing my age terribly mm. now, but I was only 10 and it was at the height of the apartheid regime. And I got to learn about this incredible man who had made the ultimate sacrifice, really. He was incarcerated for, you know, 20 odd years, um, just wanting to be treated, for just wanting to be treated equally, mm. you know, wanted justice and equality. And I know that that really, that triggered something in me because from then I was, a, you know, 10, but I really wanted to understand what was going on. I was reading more about it, talking to my mum about it, you know, at, in our house, we didn't buy any products that were, from, from South Africa. So, you know, we took our, our stand in our home, for example. But but more importantly, as I continue to follow uh, Mandela, you know, we all remember where we were when he was released from prison that Sunday um, afternoon. And just his whole character as a man, um, you know, that his character of forgiveness, but reconciliation, but also being very robust in what he believed and stood for is something that, continues to resonate with me today. I, he's genuinely one of the people that inspire me and he's one of my heroes as well. And it's also why I'm very passionate about the rights of Palestinians as well, because where there is injustice, you know, if we remain silent, we become complicit. So I think it's really important um, that, you know, we stand for justice and that's how I kind of do my life. That's what really thrust me into politics because, mm -hmm. You know, I've obviously spent my career as a lifelong campaigner for disabled people's rights, which I'm sure will um, come on to. Mm. But, um, you know, in my career, I was always there, you know, wanting to change the law, change policies and improve policies and improve the lives of some of the most vulnerable in society. And to do that, really, you know, you can't sit in the stands or stand on the sidelines and be shouting. You've got to get on court or get on the pitch and be part of that change. And so for me, I stood for local government and became a local councillor. And then when that snap election was called in 2017, I decided to 
throw my hat in the ring for a seat that was deemed as unwinnable mm. and God clearly had a different plan <laughs> and I won that seat in overturn and only 8,000 majority and you know I genuinely um you know believe my it was God breathed and that was my call into public service uh, mm. by the Lord and I will do so for as long as he wants me in that position. Wow now so when that 2017 snap election <laughs> was called were you even the candidate at that point? I wasn't the candidate and um, it's funny actually because I thought gosh loads of people are going to apply for this seat because <laughs> I you know I'm very I'm a local person and so you know for me standing there was about standing somewhere where it was going to be familiar surroundings because mm. with my vision impairment it's important to be in an environment that's very familiar to me so mm. that was kind of why I, I threw my hat in the ring to Battersea because it was so close close to where I lived and when I was um, told that I was going to be the candidate, it's so funny, I did, I mm. thought to myself, okay, great, I'm gonna stand in this seat and get some experience. Um, and I even told people, I'm just doing it for experience. You know, I told my boss at work, you know, don't worry, I won't win, I'm just doing it for experience. Um, thankfully, he was very, very, very understanding when I had to hand in my resignation. Um, but, but you know, it's it's been an amazing experience. And I, I do feel truly honored and privileged to, um, serve and represent the people of Battersea and um, it's, it's a huge responsibility but I do it um, knowing that I'm doing it kind of under God's kind of stewardship as well. Wow I mean that's a real overnight thing then isn't it I mean a seat yeah. that your party didn't hold where you mm. weren't the candidate and what six seven weeks later you're the member of parliament so yeah. if that if that isn't God at work somehow then I don't know what is so. Exactly that, that's how I look at it as well I really prayed about it and you know I didn't if, if it wasn't the opportunity for me, I really didn't want um, mm. to be thrust into it. And, you know, every door just kept opening and every opportunity just kept coming my way. Um, so, you know, I feel incredibly blessed. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Marsha de Cordova, the Labour MP for Battersea. Marsha, you were very much politicised as, as a young person mm. by the experience of, you know, seeing what was going on in South Africa, mm. apartheid there, and then motivated also very much by Nelson Mandela, the strength of his stance, and then mm. also this amazing uh, forgiveness that he demonstrated to people who had been guilty of quite unspeakable things, I think both mm. of would, would agree. Now, as a person who uh, lives with a, a disability yourself, mm. you're also driven very much to be concerned about equality for people living with disabilities. Tell mm. me about how that's worked its way out in your political life. Well, for me, I mean, I was born with a condition called nystagmus, um, which is an involuntary um, and repetitive movement of the eye, it causes me to be um, severely visually impaired, and I'm also registered as severely sight impaired. So um, my own kind of personal and lived experience has kind of really shaped um, my life, I suppose, you know, at school, but also at university, and just being a, a lifelong campaigner for the rights of um, disabled people, and my career kind of also kind of fed into that um, as well, particularly around disabled people and the social security system and the labour market and employment rights. And so these are these, these are issues that I've always um, campaigned on. And when obviously when I became um, the MP for Battersea, I'm within three months I was asked to serve as the shadow minister for disabled people. Huge honour, recognising also that I had huge shoes to fill because some of my predecessors had done an incredible job um, in that role. But for me, it was really 
primarily holding this government to account, the government of the day to account, mm. but also really helping to shape the Labour Party's um, um, policy offering uh, for disabled people and for the rights um, of disabled people. As, as a political party, um, we subscribe to what's called the social model of disability. So it's really about the societal barriers that will have a, a, a major impact. So for example, the transport network, you mm. know, it's not inclusive and accessible. So it's not really, whilst the medical model is important, it's the societal challenges that really disable us from being able to fully and equally participate in the society within which we all we all live. And you were telling me when we spoke recently about the uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights mm. of People mm. with Disabilities, mm. and the United Kingdom doesn't really sign up to that in any effective way. What what does that look like? What would it look like if we did? Yeah, I mean, well, see. So the UNCRPD, it was, you know, it's a UN convention, it's, it's internationally recognised, and the last Labour government actually uh, signed up to this, and it really took for um, successive governments to fully ratify and incorporate that convention into domestic legislation. Mm. And unfortunately, what we have seen um, is for more than a decade of really, I would say, an absolute attack on the rights of disabled people. And whether that's through the clear austerity measures that were introduced to the social security system, to things like abolishing the independent um, living fund, but also to just some of the measures that have kind of led to the rights of disabled people being infringed. And I should point out like, you know, the UN Committee on the Rights of Disabled People that oversees this convention, mm. you know, they, they investigated the UK a number of years ago. We became the first nation state to be investigated for the rights of, on the rights of disabled people. And they found that the UK government at that time um, was in a systematic violation of the rights of disabled people. So that really kind of gives you an understanding of how serious it is. Because the, the convention really, if we are going to be um, true believers and true followers and actually committed to it, we should be looking at eliminating all forms of disability discrimination and ensuring that disabled people, which is something I'm incredibly passionate about, mm. are able to live freely and independently it's not just about social care it's about being able to live independently in your home and being able to navigate the world our built environment you know shops cafes mm. restaurants businesses the whole infrastructure of a life mm. independently and we currently do not have that disabled people should be free from all forms of you know um, exploitation all forms of abuse for example, hate crime. We know that disabled people continue to be abused in this way and hate crime figures year on year um, continue to, to go up. We, know, we also would have what I would call an inclusive edu education system that goes way beyond just having, you know, um, SEND provision within our schools, mm. but it's truly about ensuring that, you know, disabled people are fully incorporated within mainstream education. We mm. only need to have certain settings as and when it is required but I think in, the most important thing for me is showing that commitment and wanting to actually incorporate that convention into UK law would have shown a, a level of commitment by the government and that hasn't happened and Labour have con continuously um, committed to incorporating it we, we, we signed up to it and we are fully believers in it and we fully um, support it um, you know I think 
if we look back over the last 11 years of, of what's happened to disabled people, there have been multiple inquiries, there have been multiple legal challenges, successful legal challenges against the government who have been found to have been treating disabled people unlawfully when they've introduced changes in relation to social security um, and benefits. And so, you know, we are up against it because I believe, and um, I know that this is the belief of many and the millions mm. of disabled people um, around, that the government have created a hostile environment. And, and as a Christian, you know, Tim, mm. we believe in equality. We want to see justice everywhere, mm. you know, around the world, but also on our doorsteps. And it's so important, I think, that we look at our own communities and see where there is some injustice happening and see how we as individuals or as the body of Christ or as the church can seek to actually change and redress some of that. And that's a great point because I think we as Christians maybe sometimes shy away from the language of equalities and we really mm. shouldn't uh, if we look at you know the beginning of Genesis you know people mm. out there might who are not Christians might say they believe in equality I don't doubt that they do but if you believe in equality on the basis of biological accident or in mm. our case believe in it because God created us with ultimate dignity that's a different order of things so Christians everywhere should be passionate about equality and if we mm. are people who are not members of uh, marginalised groups discriminated mm. against. I guess you'd tell us that it's important that we develop that empathy and stand alongside people who are on the wrong end of inequality. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're, we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And if we look how Jesus modelled his life and how he was able to teach us how we should be doing life and it's all about love it's all about compassion mm. and it's you know and it's about justice and you know I know it's, it's in the small things it's not in the big things you don't have to you know go out and do these and you know say you're going to be you know going on this march or doing whatever um I can't think of the word to, to say there Tim to be fair but <laughs> I think the key here is is having that understanding and that empathy for one but two it's acting on that because it's okay mm. to say you understand it's okay to say, gosh, that's really wrong. Um, but what could, what small change or what small act can we do to make a difference? Understanding that, you know, with disabled people now, you know, we've just come out of a pandemic where um, I believe they were, we were seen as an afterthought. And I think the numbers tell us that as well, where we know that two thirds of all deaths were either from a disabled person or somebody with an underlying health condition. We know that the poverty levels are around half of those that are in poverty are either disabled or live with somebody that is disabled. So the evidence is, is there. But what are we what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, as politicians, you know, I will continue to challenge, hold this government to account and where possible, try and work with colleagues to improve uh, the lives of disabled people. But we also need to understand how it's impacting people in our local communities as well. Mm. well Marsha, you give us a real... Uh, manifesto I guess really for what we should be doing as Christians in our communities so we should be acting on that concern for equality mm. in our own church what does it look like how accessible mm. are we in our own society how are we yeah. fighting for um, those uh, values within the community and then also mm. politically you know praying for right decisions and mm. you know graciously but firmly lobbying our members of parliament mm. and others to make sure they take the rights of people with disabilities very, very seriously. Marsha, uh, we are moved by you being a voice for the voiceless 
and we're really, really grateful to you for giving us your time today. All the best. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. All the very best. Well, each week we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, please write it in in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, we have a question from Terry from the Isle of Wight. He's been in touch to tell us this. He says, I have to take exception at your rant, Tim, on Christians taking responsibility to their neighbours by getting jabbed. For those of us who refuse it, I guess we're not loving our neighbour, clearly. An American 29-year-old athlete who nearly died as a result of the vaccine said, with risk, there should be choice. I stand by that, and I think that you should make an apology to those who will feel abandoned by yet another person of influence. The science from those who, are, who have what I consider far more integrity than the majority of our MPs. And science advisors tells me that this whole affair is skewed towards those who profit out of all this. And uh, please don't call me a conspiracist. Right, Terry. Um, well, thanks for making that point. <laughs> Let me say this quite quickly. I will vote in the House of Commons to defend your right to not take the vaccine. And as a brother, at the same time, I will rebuke you because I think it is not loving to your neighbour um, to not take the vaccine. When all said and done, um, the best way to protect one another from this is to accept the vaccine. And Christians should care about the truth. And we should be careful who we listen to the truth from. We should be careful in discerning stuff that we read on the internet uh, from unverified sources. And we should be able to weigh up between experts and those who are not. I'm not an expert. I'm guessing you aren't either. But it's important when we approach an issue like this that we consider the well-being of our neighbour. So like I say, I will fight very hard to defend your right to not take the vaccine and will tick you off as a brother. So please take it for your good and everyone around you. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. As we come together at the end of uh, this programme, let's join in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Christmas. Uh, we thank you that it is the time we get to celebrate, in particular, the entry, entry into this world of your precious son, Jesus, who came to die for us, uh, to rescue us, to save us. And we thank you that this is a time of year, even in our kind of increasingly post-Christian country and irreligious age, uh, when it's sort of all right to talk about Jesus and the gospel. I ask that Christians everywhere throughout this country, in leadership positions, just amongst congregations everywhere, would take advantage of this opportunity to speak openly about you. This is a time of great flux, uncertainty, and indeed fear for many people out there. May you use this difficult time to open the hearts of millions of people to the offer that you make uh, to every single one of us that uh, if we were to accept that um, greatest of all Christmas gifts, uh, Jesus, into our lives, then uh, meaning can be given to us and eternity can be ours with you. Uh, Lord, we just do pray for this Christmas time to be a time where your word is spoken widely, truthfully, heard and responded to by millions. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll be taking a break over the next few weeks. Do join us again in the new year, or if you want to catch up on old episodes to, you know, fill out the 
Christmas period, uh, then head to your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash our mucky business. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful Christmas.